Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. From our homes, I'm Kenny Holmes. Oh, that's so nice. I'm Robert Kraft. Yeah, we're all doing this the modern way. This is Score the Podcast presented by Spitfire Audio. This is uh, this is interesting. We're not in the same room. Uh, I want to take a quick second to introduce our uh, other guests joining us, our executive producer, Matt Schrader, and composer, Carol. Hello, hello. This is weird, guys. I'm looking at a, a screen with you all in boxes like we're on the Brady Bunch here. Yeah, it's quite a bit different, but... Uh... But it's going to be uh, an interesting season. It opens up some new possibilities for us, too. Some U.K. guests that maybe Ooh. otherwise mm-hmm. wouldn't be coming to L.A. So uh, this is going to be an interesting season. And what a way to kickstart everything with Danny Elfman. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm so excited. I would like to reassure you and our listeners that I did decide to wear pants for this episode. <laughs> One of the great advantages of doing You know, it wouldn't matter to us. We can't see. Yeah, we're waist up, man. You could be wearing cargo shorts. You could be whatever you want. Uh, well, I'm, you know, I thought I better dress. It's our season premiere. So yeah. I was tempted we'll to wear a, a tuxedo. And as but, Matt mentioned, uh, my favorite composer, um, it's relative. I mean, look, my favorite score is Batman. Um, <laughs> yes. I have, a lot of, I have a lot of favorite composers, but... Batman stands out as it's it's my number one, and it was uh, always your favorite. Even when we were doing the documentary, I remember you you talking about Batman and how formative that was and how important that was. So you must be really excited. That VHS was so (laughs) rad. The score sounded so terrible by the end of a thousand (laughs) Um, plays. But not only does Danny have Batman under his belt, but Beetlejuice, Nightmare Before Christmas, Edward Scissorhands, so many great ones. Carol, your favorite, Alice in Wonderland. Yes. Mm. Also, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Charlie and the Another Chocolate great Factory. One. Oh, man. Yeah, I he, love Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting, oh, one yeah. of my favorites. Men in Black. Just beautiful. Yes. Oh, you're so, so right. Many. How, how about Pee Wee? Pee Wee, Silver Linings yeah. Playbook, too. That was another good one. Um, yep. So many great ones, and uh, you know, it's rare for Danny to sit down for a long interview like this, so uh, yeah, we're very, very lucky. Rare. Um, this is such had, a big get for us. He has Coachella Damn. on the calendar this year that got postponed, which kind of opened the door for us uh, to have him on as the season premiere. So uh, we're really, really excited to have Danny on, and we're uh, we're we're lucky. I think um, it, we are lucky. If you search Danny Elfman, you won't find a ninety-minute interview with him on on the internet. So yeah, and uh, I think a lot of the thanks go to our our sponsor. It's just wonderful to have Spitfire Audio, the yep. maker of orchestral virtual instruments for film composer, sponsoring Score the Podcast. The best. It's, uh really is kind of industry standard, I think. Yeah. If and, you're a pro uh, in the industry, you, you've already been using them. But uh, if you're an up-and-comer, uh, aspiring composer, definitely want to check out some of their packages. Um, of course, Danny Elfman was inspired to be a composer by Bernard Herrmann, which we'll talk about later mm-hmm. in the episode. Uh, mm-hmm. And they have actually a Bernard Herrmann composer toolkit as one of their packages. Right. Um, so actually, after the show today, we're going to play you a little clip from uh, that package so you can hear some of the different sounds to demo. try and elevate your music. Um, and we also want to mention Spitfire's new Composer Magazine, which is really cool uh, on their website. 
they uh, talk to composers uh, like from shows Ozark and Handmaid's right Tale. Right on. And uh, Handmaid's also, Tale, one of my favorites. And I think they, they're they also interviewing Justin Hurwitz, who was our guest. Yeah. And the Oscar-winning uh, composer of La La Land. So that should be fun. That's right. Yep. And uh, most importantly to our listeners... We like to hook it up a little bit, and uh, with the help of Spitfire, we have a deal for you, 20% off your first purchase, Nice, and it's good on well over 50 different Spitfire libraries, so you can go Such online, a deal. check those out, it, just use the promo code SCORE2020, but this is a limited time offer, and you know podcasts live on, so if you're listening to this now, make sure to check and see if you can use that promo code now, because it's limited, it's not going to last forever. Um, hey, Mash Raider, can you tell us what can we expect from Score Season 3? First of all, did you ever expect we'd get to Season 3? I, I, I half expected we might get to Season 3 because I'm such a nerd with film composers, as as everyone here uh, is we that I, are, I'm looking yeah. at through our, our Zoom chat here while we're, we're yeah. recording remotely. But... Um, but Danny Elfman, what a way to launch this season! And uh, mm-hmm. and I know that we have a lot of other people in the works, some UK mm-hmm. composers that I'm really excited about. Uh, that uh, hopefully we'll be able to bring you this. Who this, we uh, never season. could have gotten until we actually had to use. Or or you know, it's always that weird thing where they're flying in for three days or four days in LA, and they have a meeting on days one and two. And then the third day, they have a lunch with a friend. And how are we going to squeeze in, you know, even an hour with, uh, with you know, a, a composer that we really want to get? It's it's difficult to do that. But through this technology that we're we're bringing yeah. in now, we can get access to some of those people and be sitting with them in their studios, um, not in person, but next best thing, and uh, and be able to actually chat with them and hear how they're dealing with uh, with all of the coronavirus. Uh, lockdowns and um, what they're doing, what they're writing, all of these things. So we're going to have a lot of uh, access that I'm really excited about this year, and we'll be able to keep growing the show. So please feel free to all our fans, keep uh, spreading the word. Um, social media uh, is the, the easiest way, but share us with a friend, uh, Danny Elfman, this episode, of course. And we're so excited for uh, season three. If you are going to spread the word, please wear a mask. And I think we... Uh also need composer carol we need to find our favorite cardi b little uh audio virus i can't do it coronavirus <laughs> um whenever somebody says that i want to hear coronavirus um it's a so, little it's I'm, nice to hear a positive uh spin on on this whole thing that well i think there's it, been so the much creativity it has exploded door, yeah. we all know what a great creative community our country is and and how how online creativity and comedy is just keeps us all afloat but many of our composers have actually done funny things i mean we've had a lot of fun with them mm-hmm. i know that one of my favorite composers wrote a song yeah that uh was super great only randy newman can write a song about covid19 and it sounds like it belongs in <laughs> toy story 5 uh, here, here's a little clip of it. Uh, we we got a kick out of it. It might be in Toy Story 5. Stay away from me. <laughs> Get away from me. Keep your distance, please. Hey. Stay away from me. <laughs> Words of love in times like these. <laughs> That's great. I'm going to be with you 24 hours a day. A lot of people couldn't stand that, but you can. 
<laughs> you be with me 24 hours a day. What a lucky man I Oh, love Randy so much. Man, that's great. Maybe we can get him on the show. Maybe we can get him to play on the show. Is that a <laughs> dream come true? I hope so. Yeah, we maybe, had fun. We, maybe we can have composers play a little bit this season. Since they're yeah. in their studio, they're, they'll be dialed in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes they just have instruments hanging on the wall. We can just say, hey, yeah, grab that real quick. Let us know. That Social w- media. Let us know if you're interested. If you want to use more of that this year. Speaking of re- recording remotely, we were talking about this a little bit. There's been some articles out there, and um, even this past weekend on our Quiplash uh, game we played, we were talking with Jeff right. Russo about this. Um, composers Wait, we don't are- want to just we, – we, we have to acknowledge, I mean, I did win game number two. I just want to <laughs> okay, shout out. Okay, all right. Out. Let, me, let me give a quick backstory for those of us that don't follow our social media. I handles. won game three, all right. We did a live stream, and it was uh, Quiplash. It's this – It's uh, uh, how do you describe it? Like a, a living room game. It's like um, Cards Against Humanity online. Basically. So you get a prompt. It says, you know, name the worst theme for a pinball machine, and everyone says, you know, uh, diapers and, uh, you know uh, – uh, death and taxes and you know everyone comes up with these ideas for certain answers then the funniest answer gets voted on by everyone that plays so you end up with sometimes uh, pretty raunchy answers <laughs> but most of our answers were pretty clean uh, in this round I was a little bit surprised and then we started to steer into that territory a couple times. But uh, but it's on YouTube now. If you want to watch that game that we played, it was the four of us, uh, Jeff Russo, Christopher Lennertz, uh, Pinar Toprak, and uh, Joseph Trapanese. And uh, we had a great time. So if you want to see more of that, uh, let us know. We learned that Pinar is the raunchiest of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely well, she, hysterical. And she won, she won one of the games, didn't she? Yeah, she, she did. She won the first round or second round. But Jeff yeah. Russo also told us while we were getting ready about what it's like for him to record this season of Star Trek. No, no, it was Umbrella Academy. Oh, it was Umbrella Academy. You're yeah. right. He's doing Star Trek, but it was Umbrella Academy where he has each player recording, of course, separately in isolation. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and there uh, was, uh, of course, Chris Bowers was mentioning that too with his show on Hulu, Mrs. America, about how... There, the the show was. I think for him, he he had two episodes left to to hit the soundstage and and record, and then this whole thing happened. And you know they have a deadline to put the show out, so you got to just put your thinking cap on. This is weird, though, man. Like nothing's ever happened like this before, ever for any of our lifetimes. It really hasn't. I mean, it just in spe- the specific arena of film music. Part of the joy of writing the score is getting to hear it performed by an orchestra or a, you know, an ensemble or a polka band or whatever it is, but getting live players into a room. And here, you're suddenly playing the notes, but if you have everybody sitting separately, I think it's just a little bit different. I have never one to say it's better or worse. It's just different, and it's something yeah. that we're all getting used to. So we'll and see. It definitely we'll, has so, limitations, but it seems like there's also some experimentation that's happening now, and yeah. that's pretty cool. So, I mean, that's even creativity. what we were talking about earlier, this opens up some new possibilities for certain things that maybe we couldn't have done before, but now we but can. You're right. It does also add a lot of time on the back end to put all that stuff together, which – 
is probably right. the worst part of it. Like all of this stuff is doable, but to take all of these different recordings and and piece them all together in time instead of the the group playing together in a room under the same microphones that that seems like the biggest hassle of all of this. Yeah, and um, speaking of adding things on the back end, how are all of you doing with your eating at home? Are you kind of keeping things <laughs> under control or have you been <laughs> I'm Has trying. Everyone gained their uh, the COVID nineteen yet? I'm going the other direction. I'm really taking advantage of uh, the time to try and be careful. But I know Kenny, you've had some anxiety recently when uh, this very exciting event was coming towards us. Oh, yeah. So Were you anxious eating, <laughs> stress eating. Uh, I've been. I've yeah. I've been basically like. Do you ever see the Nutty Professor when he's dumping the whole jar of M and M's into his mouth? That no, was you when the week we, before Danny Elfman. When, when I found out we were having Danny on, I got really excited, as you can imagine. Uh, can't wait to talk to him about Batman and all his great scores. But when we we put it on the books, it was weeks in advance. And I think just like anything that you're excited or anticipating, you're you're always worried that something's going to happen or, or postpone, or especially with these composers being busy. And yeah. In fact, one of the other composers we booked this season had a, a family illness and had to push it back. So... Every time that I would get a message about Danny Elfman in email or in Slack or whatever we're using to communicate, all I had had in my mind was that it's gonna he's gonna cancel or postpone. Oh no, I, this is this is. The I've been bad really news. stressed out about this, <laughs> and we were actually even worried about posting it on on social media, like announcing him because right. you know he's somebody who's well in demand, and with all of this content they're trying to get out there, like at any point he could get a call for a an animated something, write some music, and uh, I'm just I'm just so glad and relieved that we're here and we have him and we got it. He's on the show. Very excited. And I'm proud of our team, guys. This has been, you know, we started this a couple years ago as a hobby. And look where we're at now. Season premiere of season three with Danny Elfman on the show. And a great sponsor. We really have kind of moved into the future. So I think, as they say, without further A-D-I-E-U, not A-D-O, adieu, it's adieu. adieu. Without further... Thank you so much. I thought I'd bring a little culture to the uh, party, but we have the great (laughs) maestro Danny Elfman ahead. Stick around. We will be right back. Hey, SCORE fans. I'm just wondering if you have a favorite question you've been dying to ask us. You know, you could send it to us in an email. You send it to scorethemailbox at epiclef.com. That's E-P-I-C-L-E-F-F. Come up with a good question. Kenny or I will do our best to answer it, and if we don't know the answer, we may make one up, you know, just to keep the program rolling. Better yet, you could even record the question yourself and attach that to an email. Include your name and your location, and you just might make an appearance on this season of Score the Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Hey there, fans of Score the Podcast. I'm David W. Collins, creator and host of The Soundtrack Show for iHeartRadio. Like you, I love Score the Podcast. And The Soundtrack Show is the perfect complement if you're passionate about music for film, TV, even video games and theater. Each week, I do a deep dive into some of the greatest scores of all time, as well as some fan favorites, and talk about why the music moves us from a character and story point of view. We also learn fascinating behind-the-scenes stories and share the history and background that brought each piece of music to life. It doesn't matter if you're a musician or not. Music is a language that we all understand. And through our love of movies like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, or even classics like Casablanca or Psycho, we can gain a deeper appreciation for how composers are speaking to us through music, explaining why we have such a powerful reaction to the images on screen. The Soundtrack Show is available on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Marco Beltrami. You're listening to Score the Podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Presented by Spitfire Audio, welcome back to this season premiere episode of Score the Podcast. A huge guest. Uh, We've been wanting to get this composer on the show since we started. He's an Oscar-nominated composer with some of the greatest film scores. I mean, he's definitely on the Rushmore of uh, film composing. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, my favorite, Batman, Men in Black, so many great ones. Danny Elfman, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Danny. Danny, it's fun to even think that you and I get an opportunity to chat. There's so many wonderful histories and intertwining family relationships here. Did you intend on being a rock star with Oingo Boingo? Or did you think this is my path to being one of the greatest film composers in cinema history? Is there one of those that was obvious to you or was it just stumbling forward? Oh, it was all 100. Well, first off, thank you for that insanely over-complimentary introduction, all which I don't accurate. <laughs> <clears throat> But um, it was all stumbling. Um, I didn't even intend to get into music um, mm. ever when I was young. Uh, I I didn't have a musical background. Um, I didn't take music lessons. My parents weren't very musical. Now, interestingly, much later, um, I discovered I once found a trumpet in the closet at home when I was a kid and my mom said, oh, your dad played trumpet. And I asked my dad about it. I said, you played trumpet? And he goes, ah, it was nothing, nothing. He was a school teacher for his entire career, taught mm-hmm. elementary school. And uh, I didn't learn till later that um, he came to California from Kenosha, Wisconsin to hit it as a big band trumpet player and songwriter and actually had written songs. He never mentioned it to any of us. And if I tried to bring it up with him, he would just go, no, 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 that was nothing. That was nothing. Wouldn't talk about it, had had no regrets. And uh, he just made it sound like, oh, that was just something that happened for a second, and uh, but wasn't my calling. So um, I had very little musical background. Um, <clears throat> it was all a series of coincidences, um, starting with, the fact that my parents moved uh, neighborhoods when I started high school. Hmm. And I started high school, uni high in uh, West LA. 
um, with no friends. And uh, so I started making new friends from scratch. And I ended up falling in with an arty crew by <laughs> sheer coincidence. And most of them played instruments. One of them was, in fact, already a composer at 16. Hmm. And uh, he, this composer, his name is Michael Byron. He's still out there in the East Coast composing. I hope he's well right now in this catastrophe. Haven't talked to him in a while. Hmm. But uh, he turned me on to the Rite of Spring and then wow. more Stravinsky. And it really turned my world upside down. Um, I literally threw away over the next two years, all of my, almost all of my albums. I mean, I, I overreacted. I wish I had them back now, (laughs) but that was typical for me. I learned. Um, and uh, one of this group was, uh, a percussionist, the drummer Hmm. who ended up becoming now percussionist with San Francisco symphony and, uh, uh, he was the the crazy one, you know, like as drummers tend to be. So right. I had a composer, a drummer, another guy was a bass player. And my own girlfriend was not really a musician, but she was an artist. And she played some bass. She went on to found Sonic Youth. Oh, um, wow. So, um, yes. And so uh, it was an arty group and it turned my perspective completely around uh was there a a moment that you had to pick an instrument to kind of launch into the group i mean yeah well no it it wasn't into the group it was out of the group because it was my last year in high school and i didn't graduate with the group i left six months early Hmm. um so i technically i got a diploma although i sometimes say i I'm a high school dropout because <laughs> I didn't complete my last year and I wanted out so bad, so quick. And, uh, but I knew I was going to travel around the world. That's what I wanted to do. Hmm. And, um, I picked up violin and I oh. owe that to the fact that Kim Gordon and myself and a couple others used to frequently go to an Indian restaurant in Venice. And, uh, that's where, um, I lived in the early days, and they played a lot of Django Reinhardt. Oh, Stefan Grappelli time. Yeah, and Stefan Grappelli became my, it's like, wow, I'd love to play jazz violin like that. So I went off on this trip, and um, I brought, a, it was crazy, because I had this huge backpack, and on the backpack was a violin in a canvas case, <laughs> and I carried it for a year through Africa and uh, kind of taught myself violin. And um, and then more coincidences continued to happen. Now, I have to say that by the time I got to high school, I, I was a film fan. Hmm. And I was also a fan of some film music because uh, Bernard Herrmann, connected with me when I was about 12 or 13. And I started noticing his name, every film that he was on, I knew was going to be something special. And I grew up in the era of the Bernard Herrmann science fiction fantasies. Mm. Um, Jason and the Argonaut, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Um, mm. you know, And when I would see his name with Harryhausen, it's like, this is going to be my favorite movie this year. And it would be. <laughs> the H.H., 
Harry Hausen Herman combination was magic for me. So now I'm in high school. I'm hanging out with an arty group. I'm going to the movies at least three times a week because those are the days where uh, the retrospective houses played uh, the Fox Venice and the New Art uh, yeah. for a dollar, maybe two dollars. Um, you'd see a different movie every night of the week. And we didn't have video, of course, and DVDs. So I was soaking up cinema. And it was a great period to be soaking up cinema. Because in one week at the Fox Venice, you'd be seeing Kurosawa with Polanski, with Russ Myers, with um, Truffaut, with uh, uh, Roger Corman. It was all mixed up. It was so rich, and I didn't realize it at the time that those high school years, I was getting this great education. And, of course, a lot of Alfred Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And in the Hitchcock, amazingly, I rediscovered my childhood infatuation with Herman. Mm. Because Herman, at that point, when I was young, did not include Hitchcock movies because I had never seen one. Mm. And um, the first Hitchcock movie that came out as a kid that I was like, oh, I got to see this was the first and only movie I was forbidden to see, which was Psycho. Now, in the 60s, my mother had no idea what I was going to the movies to see. They didn't Mm -hmm. accompany us. Sure. Uh, I went every weekend, Baldwin Hills Movie Theater. I never saw an adult in that theater. (laughs) It was just hundreds of kids converging. And um, they'd play two films. And... uh, you know, that was my early years, but I never a Hitchcock film because Psycho comes out and there's this kind of press about psychosexual thing. And my mom says, oh, no, I go, what is this word? No, I, I've never heard it before for a movie. It, it just had never been in the vocabulary. There was never even a what are you going to go see this week? I, you know, she did ask, I go, oh, it's the head that wouldn't die. And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, the man with two brains. Well, that makes you want to go see it even more at that point yeah, as course. a kid, too. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, it kind of was maddening. I'd never been denied access to a film. And, um, and thank God we didn't have ratings and all that stuff back then. Because I wouldn't have been able to see two thirds of the stuff that I saw when I was a kid, which was gory as hell. And, um, I'm so grateful that I was able to see it nonetheless. But um, Hitchcock, Psycho, I couldn't see it. So the first Hitchcock movie I saw was The Birds, which, as you know, has no score. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so it really wasn't until high school later that suddenly I'm going, oh, my God, North by Northwest, Psycho, Vertigo. It's like... um, Citizen Kane. It's like I'm going back to the entire now history of Herman that I saw as a fantasy composer and uh, all those other sides of him. And so that really made me a fan. So I, I never kind of actually knew. Did you meet him? Oh, no, no. By the time, uh, you know, 1985, when I did my first film, um, I had no way of accessing Herman or any of that, you know, it's like, it never occurred to me that I would ever be scoring a film until I mean, we speak adventure. Because I just cut from you watching those movies to you scoring movies. And there's a kind of huge gap in there. What happens 
to make that transformation. I, I actually wanted to ask you before we go too far ahead, did you ever circle back with your dad about that trumpet once you started getting into music? Did you guys ever jam? Did you, did you find a bond there at all? No, he never played for me ever. He would just like, oh, no, 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 I don't play anymore. He would just laugh. He would just laugh it off. <laughs> I mean, there is something really incredible about the, I have to imagine, the genetic relationship of you not growing up in a musical household or taking lessons and ending up this complete and magnificent musician that is unorthodox to say the least well it's unorthodox and i i try to advise when i do talk with students i say do not do what i have done because my life has been a series of crazy accidents including becoming a performer, which I'd never intended to do, getting into music, which I never intended to do. Um, if you'd asked me in the 11th grade what I wanted to do with my life, I would have said, maybe at that point, I might have said film instead of uh, biology. Mm -hmm. I might have switched, but it would have been an editor, maybe a cinematographer. That's where my mind was. Uh, maybe someday I'd be a director, but an editor, a cinematographer, these things like seem like sensible ways to try to start studying film. And when I went and traveled for a year, it was my intention to come back and go to school and study film. I never got the chance. Um, more accidents happened along the way. Um, I'm curious what, I mean, these some are good accidents. great stories. Yeah. What, I mean, the accidents, first of all, I thought you were going to say when you talk to students, you know, you, it's interesting you say you advise them not to do it the way that you did. But the other part of it is there's this kind of assumption these days, particularly with all the film schools and and music departments, that there's a tried and true path. And there's not one composer who doesn't say it was accident. It was right karma. place, right time. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yours yes is no. more extreme I, I, in some ways. I would agree. Yes, because I would argue with the student, you really got to study and learn what it is you do and then wait for that accident because the accident isn't I became a composer. The accident is I got a lucky break. Right. Everybody in will have a story of a lucky break, meaning being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. Of course, but you got to be ready for it, yeah. but you got to be ready for it. And I'm a rare case of somebody who wasn't ready, but I was an eager and quick learner and I soaked it up really aggressively so um, I came to film music as a fan, and I've often described it like, imagine Jack Nicholson is sitting courtside at a Laker game, which we've seen on the screen for decades and decades. He's like a fan of the game. Imagine somebody gets injured on the court and they throw the ball to Jack and say, you're in. It's kind of like that's what it felt like when I got thrown Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It was like, okay. Get on the court, you're in. And the did you thing, have a stomach ache at that moment of I can't do this or this is beyond me or was it? Oh, let's just take a shot. Well, I mean, uh, I got a call to meet with Tim Burton uh, on Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and I was in Oingo Boingo at the time, so it already I was in a rock band, and I assumed it was about a song for the movie. <laughs> and he says to me, "No, I'd like you to do the score," and it's like. I, I literally, my words to him was, why me? And he was like, well, I don't know. I've been to Boingo concerts and I just think you could do it. Now, nice. there's another layer behind that, which I wasn't aware of. 
which was Paul Rubens, um, when I got the call to you know meet about Pee Wee's Big Adventure, I knew who Pee Wee was immediately because I'd seen Paul's work for years. I used to go to the Groundlings in Los Angeles, which was an improv comedy group. And mm. I saw Paul do Pee Wee when Pee Wee was just one of several characters that he wow. did. But it brought down the house every night. So uh, by the time Pee Wee's Big Adventure came along, I was like, ah, oh, great, a Pee Wee movie. <laughs> and But what I didn't know is that this goes back to those crazy intertwining coincidences. When I got back from my year in Africa, which wasn't around the world like I'd planned, that ended up just took, taking a year to cross the continent, I I didn't quite understand looking at a map what it meant to start in Mauritania and go down the coast and cross over through Africa and end up on the east coast. Yeah. It was it was like close to a year trip. Right. And um in the meantime, uh before that trip started, I stopped in and visit my brother in Paris. More coincidences. Um my brother was a conga drummer. Um he had gone to Toronto when I was 16, I was in Europe. My father had a minor heart attack when he was in Toronto. My brother flew there to be with him. I didn't even know about it. They didn't tell me until I got home. They didn't want to worry me. <laughs> and he met on the streets a theatrical a theatrical troupe called the Grand Magic Circus from Paris that was there for a festival. And he got some congas and he jammed with them. And they said, come to Paris and play with us. So now I go to Paris, it's three years later, and he's playing conga drums with Le Grand Magic Circus. I got this violin on my back. I'm practicing one day. You know, I stayed with him for a couple of weeks before heading off to Morocco. And um, at least that was the plan at that moment. <clears throat> and the director comes in while I'm playing and I come out and he goes, hey, he called me Little Red. My brother was Big Red and I was Little Red. <laughs> um you should come play with us. I go, I, I've been playing for five months. I don't play. He goes, yeah, you're good enough. And I decided, what the fuck? And I just went on and played with like Grand Magic Circus. So I got performing wow. for the first time in my life. Yep. Did you sing or just play? Just play. And now I get back a year later, very ill from West Africa, and my brother had started the Mystic Nights of the Oingo Boingo. He left the Grand Magic Circus. He came home with his French wife, Marie Pascal, and um, started this troupe in, uh, based somewhat on the Grand Magic Circus. Hmm. And I was immediately appointed musical director. <laughs> nice. <laughs> because he used to hear me goof around on stuff and he just decided oh you you can do this so i became the musical director of a street theater troupe literally that we passed the hat for years we just fantastic played. and um in those years i learned to write music i learned to notate transcribe because when I started with Le, the Mystic Knights, I wanted to make it more musical. So I started a thing. Everybody who came in the troupe had to play at least three instruments. And eventually, after three, four years, there's 12 of us. And we're a brass band, we're a string band, we're a percussion band. Oh, that's perfect. awesome. And um, we, at that point, I was absolutely infatuated with music pre-1938. And so in the 70s now, I'm a young man mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, I wouldn't listen to anything written after 1938. I said, that's mm -hmm. my cutoff. 
Um, and I started wanting to do uh, Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway arrangements with the Mystic Knights. And I had to learn to transcribe. Amazing. It's and just so fabulous. I taught, I taught myself to write listening. It started with uh, Duke Ellington's Black and Tan Fantasy. I'll, I'll not forget fabulous. it. Yeah. Because the hard part there is getting the piano solo right. Mm. And uh, Duke's style was interesting and i had to really listen in those days you had to drop a needle over and over on a record there was no yeah. like scrolling scrubbing through digital recordings and i learned that i had a good ear so now in the late 70s my brother leaves the mystic knights to go off and do a movie called forbidden zone hmm. and he wants me and the mystic knights to do the music so with the mystic knights i do a kind of a score it wasn't really like a synchronized score, but it, it was a score. Now, unbeknownst to me, and this is where it all comes together, Paul Rubens was a big fan. And <laughs> Paul Rubens, and Paul told me this only not that long ago. He said, when I came home from Forbidden Zone, I said, if I ever do a movie, I'm hiring that guy to do my music. What? Yeah. So now it's 1985. Years later, uh, I'm in a rock band. I already thought all that work I'd put into learning to transcribe and to notate was wasted time and effort because, you know, I'm in a rock band. You don't write music down. It's head you know? charts. Yeah. It's just like, here's the chords. Here's the melody. You sing it. Then you're off. It's like there's no writing anything down. You were filling up this toolbox for the future that you weren't aware of. It's pretty crazy. I was filling up a toolbox for the future that I was totally unaware of. I, I actually was a point where I was like, oh, those wasted years, those wasted years. <laughs> and then I get called to do Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. How do you do that? And there, and there was a beat you had asked, like where my stomach hurt. When I first got the call, my manager, um, I said, tell him I can't do it. And I met with him. I did a demo. I, I made a tape on a four-track sent him a cassette and he goes, why? I go, cause I don't know how to score a film. He goes, you call him and tell him I spent a week negotiating this deal. You <laughs> call him if you want. And I thought about picking up the phone, but the thing that served me best in life at that moment, at that particular juncture was the fact that Oingo Boingo wasn't a punk band, but hmm. I was totally punked out in my own way it's like i didn't give a fuck about anybody what anybody thought about what we did i was totally confrontative on stage i loved getting into scuffles on the floor i mean it was just part of my life it just matched my energy level i was too old you know when i started doing a point i said we can't be a punk band i'm, I'm old i'm an old man i'm 28 <laughs> 27 it's like Punks are 17, you know, it's like, okay, so I'm an old man. I'll do my own thing, starting a ska group. But my head was in that space. And so when I got that job, it was just kind of like, literally, I thought about it and I said, fuck it. I don't care. They'll throw out the score. And if they don't like it, they can go fuck themselves. I mean, that perfect. was my mindset. And that was a perfect mindset because I didn't think about it. It was just like, here's an open door. Go. It was just that simple. I think that it's actually when I was reading about some of your other work, occasionally you've mentioned with... There it is. Oh, of course, with Pee Wee. 
I think I read that with the Simpsons, there was a similar, you know, this won't go. It's not important. I'll just have fun with it. It, What you're really saying is that often when you throw out your own expectations or any external pressure and you say, I'm just going to do this for the love of it or for the fun of it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You've actually allowed yourself huge creative freedom. I mean, the remarkable part about it is that peewee score. I was listening to it this weekend. It holds up. It holds <laughs> up as whatever your mindset was, you nailed it. And it's well, also referential. It's funny you say 1938 to film music from eras before that. Well, that, yeah. I mean, at that point, I was referential to the 60s, to Nina Rota. Um, when I first saw Peewee, uh, the opening scene of him on a bicycle in a bicycle race. I feel, I said, this feels like a weird European comedy, like a wacky early European comedy. It doesn't feel like an American contemporary comedy. <clears throat> and that goes back to being at the right place at the right time. In the eighties, film comedies musically were in a weird place. Hmm. There wasn't a lot happening. People didn't know quite what to do with music. They tended, comedy scores tend to either be kind of classical based or pop, like kind of pop based or sometimes jazzy, but more like kind of pop music. They, I think you're right. I think it was sort of that Faltemeyer, you know, I'm thinking of 80s things. They were trying to sound cool by putting synth and sequence drums and comedy was in a little bit of a betwixt and between it was betwixt and between and so peewee just happened to come along at exactly the right moment i didn't care if the studio warner brothers liked the score because i figured they were going to throw it out i mean i went in already figuring tim burton loves it that's all that matters he's the only one i'm playing music for and um the studio will hear it they'll throw it out and they'll hire a real composer so <laughs> i went in with that mindset and i said that's fine i'll get a good experience out of it I loved writing the score. And I'll tell you, the first moment when I was in front of the orchestra, um, hearing that first cue played back, that that was a deep impression. I'd never been in front of an orchestra before. I'd never even really heard an orchestra play. I mean, I'd been it's to just, a few concerts as a kid. In did the you audience. conduct it? Oh, no. Are you, are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, me conducting would be the biggest joke. Um, even now, I never conduct, and I will never conduct. I I didn't realize that till one of the first things we did together, and you sat in the control room, which I thought made so much sense. But I think I was used to the composer doubling up, and and it never occurred to me. Well, wait a minute; it's actually more important to sit next to the director. I, well, that's what I absolutely. Thought. It's the only way I could conceive. It's like first off, I want to hear the music through speakers. I don't want to hear it in the room. It sounds much better in the room, but it's not what you're going to hear in yeah. the theater. And a film score is designed to play through speakers. It's not designed to play in a concert. So I want to hear it like I'm going to hear it in a theater, which is a different balance than sitting in the room. So that's first thing. Did you know how to spot a film? I mean, there's certain kind of like essential things that film composers know that it sounds like in the beginning, I wonder, did you know how to spot a film and where did you, where did you record at Warner brothers and were there like executives in the room? I mean, it's just to have in retrospect, look back and say, here's a guy that's creating this work that if anybody tapped him on the shoulder and asked him like all these 
baseline questions, uh, he'd say, mm, I actually haven't done it that way. Did you spot with, with Tim Burton for Pee Wee? Yeah, I spotted. I had a really good music editor. His name is Bob Batamy. And, the um, best. And he, uh, he kind of like, it was right at the beginning of the era where they didn't, we no longer, nobody, people were, he said, you could use a click book. And they were still using click books to time, you know, yeah, nudes and click books. So you time the space. I go, no, I'm not going to do that. And uh, so it was just start here and here, start here and here. And I figured out how to take it and find a click <laughs> with a, you know, I would just get a click from a Roland drum machine, just play different clicks. Mm. And I'd find the tempo that felt right for the scene. And Perfect. that's what I would write. And what I learned on Pee Wee was that if you find the right tempo for a scene, it's easy. Yeah. Um, making things hit is easy. Uh, it's not nearly as hard as I thought it was. If you find the right, if you find the editor's internal tempo. Yes. And that's what I learned there, that um, a good editor will have a pace that he may or may not even be aware of. And if you find that tempo, that is where the editor is coming from things tend to just fall in line without that much difficulty. And um, that was like the great lesson that, you know, Bob taught me how to spot, how to like start a cue and get it rolling. Had very primitive tools at that point. Like I said, just a, a rolling drum machine, a, you know, 707 or one. What, what was that? I can't even remember which, yeah. 808. which drum machine it was. Oh. 808. And, uh, and a few synthesizers. Um, did you demo? Like a, did you demo for Tim or the studio? Yeah, I mean, but I had the demo for Tim, and that was hard because at Pee Wee's Big Adventure, me playing the Breakfast Machine to, play, to be, uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure on piano for Tim. If you've ever seen Shine with Jeffrey Rush, of course, playing yeah. uh, Rachmaninoff. Yeah. I, I mean, the pianist playing Rachmaninoff on the piano and the sweat pouring down that was me trying to play peewee's big adventure for tim and i vowed at that moment i'll never do this again in my life so it was after peewee where i was trying to play through stuff on the piano and i'm so not a pianist the only instrument i had any experience with at that point was a little bit of violin and violin wasn't going to help me show you know yeah. you have to Play it on a keyboard. You said in a previous interview that uh, Batman was your your most difficult time um, with a score because partly because you had to present to producers, the producers didn't want you. But why was the Batman thing so difficult? Yeah, I mean, I had nine films under my belt. That's the only reason I was able to do Batman because mm. every film I did, uh, I would try to get one or two films a year for those early years because I wanted to learn. I was really hungry. And so um, Tim used to joke that uh, Pee Wee was one, uh, Beetlejuice was five, and Batman was 10. And he goes, you're doing four films between each of mine. I go, exactly. That's what I need <laughs> to do. But I was also writing and touring and producing for Oingo Boingo. So they were crazy years. Um, I literally, I remember getting a couple of movies where I would go to the band and go, I'll split my fee with you. I'll give you half my fee. I'll keep half. So I'm buying the time to take off a month and score this film from Oingo Boingo. And, so uh, Oingo Boingo was still going during Batman. 
Oh yeah, you, ten you're years. Still in a band. I did both. Yeah, eighty-five to ninety-five. Uh, I'm still in the band. I'm writing, producing, touring, and I'm trying to get in two scores a year if I can. My goodness. How many scores a year would you say you do in, I don't know if 2020 is representative, what would be the most number of scores you've written in a year? I mean, these are all the questions I've always wanted to ask, so they're random. Well, I mean, for me, that would be four would be the most that's possible, really, because uh, I don't use a crew. Yeah. And I can't really do multiple films at the same time. And a film tends to be six weeks to three months or more. So four films potentially takes up the better part of a year uh, or potentially a whole year. Yeah. Um, Of course. I mean, and and you run into composers that overbook and take and they end up with two at once because – I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but occasionally in show business, films go a little longer than well, they that, told you. Yeah, that I've had them. I look at them as icebergs. You know, you you get them set up, but sometimes they start floating, and suddenly one <laughs> crashes Ooh. into the other. And occasionally, once or twice, one actually passes the other one up. And so, oh, yeah, th- th- uh, things happen, and I've had them overlap. But I work hard at not having as little overlap as possible because it is maddening for me. I wonder, uh, did the demo process change for you? You played piano on that breakfast scene, which is one of my favorites. (laughs) Yeah. And Pee Wee's big adventure. I played piano, but believe me, by the time back to school came along uh, already, I was trying to figure out a way to play into like a primitive sequencer and play back. So I could play. What I learned is that the only way I can do this is to play slowly and then play it back at tempo. Right. And what I wondered is, you know, it became so accepted that you'd go to the composer's studio with the producer and the director and the executives and and the composer would hit the space bar and play an entire completely synthesized mocked up cue. But is that's that how we do it that, now. And is that something oh. that you had to accommodate and evolve to or will people say it's danny elfman just play me you know the right hand of the piano No, not at all i mean that was part of the evolution of those early years between 85 and 90 was exactly the years of midi really taking off i had the first mac and for me it was incredible to be able to like synchronize a digital performer in a macintosh and start to lay multiple tracks in so by the time I got to Beetlejuice, which was Tim's second film, but my fifth film, um, I was mocking everything up already. Now, the mock-ups didn't sound good, but it was all mocked up. By the time yeah. I got to Batman, I already, now I knew how to like fully render. Uh, so, but, you know, to answer an earlier question, I didn't have producers and uh, executives coming in early on. And that mm. was the beautiful thing about those first films. Uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice. Um, it was really just him and I. Uh, Edward Scissorhands was like that, Nightmare Before Christmas. Batman was the only exception where I suddenly had to like, wow, I have to play for people. Yeah. Uh, do, you know, uh, what we call a dog and pony show for everybody. And that is really nerve-wracking. But the, uh, and Pee-wee... You know, there's something great about being on a movie that's below the radar of yeah. most people. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're doing that Pee Wee movie. We're not worried. Yeah. Uh, oh, Beetlejuice, what the hell is that? We're not worried. Uh, 
Batman were worried. <laughs> so suddenly, on all levels, right? I mean, that was a that was a big gamble for many the studio for for everybody to try and change what people expected of Batman. It was totally understandable that they were very nervous about me. Uh, Tim wanted me on the show, but John Peters, the producer, was not keen at all about having me. Uh, the studio, I think they felt like, yeah, Danny's fine for the comedies, but we need a real composer. Mm. And uh, I get it. I mean, I, I would have thought the same way. So I'm not looking at how they were thinking with any kind of like, those those bastards it it was a sensible thing for them to be worried about me and uh john wanted the first meeting we had you know he's very pop oriented so uh, there's a great time when i was walking through gotham city tim flew me out there and i met john and his original idea was that michael jackson would write the batman theme uh George Michaels would write the love theme and Prince would write the Joker theme. And he's telling me about this. And Bob is kind of positioning himself between us as we're walking because he knows we're both hot blooded guys. Hmm. And we'd already just talked in his office about boxing because he says, you know, he's the first thing he said to me. So I hear you box. I go, no, no, no. I just train. I don't actually box. (laughs) And he was really interested. And he showed me how to do a sucker punch in his office. And uh, I still know how to do a sucker punch. I don't. So uh, you're going to have to show me at some point. Thanks to John. And uh, so he's describing this and Bob's moving between us because I think he sees on my face. It's like, this isn't going well. And uh, so I was like, oh, I don't really understand what I'd be doing in here. And then it came down to like, you know what? We want you to co-write a score with Prince. Hmm. And Hmm. I had to say, I love Prince. I respect Prince, but I'm not co-writing a score with them Mm -hmm. because I don't want to do a pop score. I already know what this score is. I already knew the score. I had it in my head. And um, I knew that if I co-wrote being me nobody with somebody like Prince, I would be essentially orchestrating Prince's music. Yeah. Because I know how it works. And uh, no disrespect to Prince, but I was going to be a glorified orchestrator. And uh, I didn't have the gravitas at that point to be able to say, okay, you do this part and I'll do this part and let's approach it as equals or anything like that. Did Tim tell you where songs would go and where score would go? Oh yeah. I mean, the songs were in the film. There was like two songs on camera. Yeah. And it's like, that was never an issue. I mean, I've had that actually on a number of films where, sure. Okay. There's you're spotting the film. This is spotted for a song. They've even shot to a song, you know, Elliot Smith. With uh, Goodwill, there was so Absolutely. And uh, it was, uh, they even knew what pieces of music and uh, it wasn't like a mystery as it often is, as with Elliot in Goodwill Hunting. But they didn't want me on the movie and I had to like temporarily leave the film. And um, I never knew. Yep. For a short time, I had to back off and I said, let Prince do his thing. And I spent the most miserable month of my life, oh, honestly. Shoot. 
I felt like I'd walked away from this great opportunity. Now, I may have started with a fuck-all attitude on Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but now 10 films later, I really, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I really want it. I want more of it. I'm like, I'm hooked. Yeah. And uh, I felt like I just threw my career away. Oh. But and looking back, that was probably the best decision you ever made for that, right? I was, but... You know, there are moments like this, there's no answers. There's just, there's two doors and you have to walk through one of them. It was a brave move. And there's many doors. I, I, I look back on my past where I go, I walked through the wrong door here. But this wasn't <laughs> one of those moments, fortunately, because about a month later, I got a call from Tim saying, um, would you come back to London? Let's talk. And Had you I got played it. him that theme? Did he, had he heard it or was that still to come? Um, I think at that point I had, but I think Tim was also trying to navigate the waters here, like what to do and how, and he was real interested in, you know, Prince and having him involved with the film, but he didn't have a lot of power yet at that moment either. So he wasn't in a position to go, no, this is what I want. He, he couldn't do that. It had to happen organically. Yeah. Prince went and wrote a bunch of music. They, they played it and I got the call. Oh, that's so nice. And it's such an epic score. Oh, my gosh. And also, it's interesting to think, particularly hearing the backstory, that now mm -hmm. we have Pee Wee, which is one kind of score, Beetlejuice, which is certainly one kind of score, and then Batman sets a whole template for a generation of a kind of movie score, a kind of sound uh, that... I can understand having been a film executive, exactly what you said. The guy who does Pee Wee is going to do Batman. You know, what? What? Right. It just, it That's like compute. the equivalent now of like you're doing a $200 million film and you're hiring the guy who did like some quirky comedy and going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That was a interesting, but this is a $200 million movie. Now, Batman wasn't $200 million, but it was about equivalent then to oh, like a $150 million movie. And um, it was a very risky thing. So I had to fight for that. I had to suffer for it. Um, but the beauty of Pee Wee and Beetlejuice and Batman and still to come Edward Scissorhands and the Nightmare Before Christmas um, was that there was no templates to work with. Nothing. And that now in hindsight is heaven because it almost never happens to me anymore um, where you get a movie where there's virtually no template. They can't tempt this, the movie. They don't tempt it because there's it's nothing. so they, interesting. You're so right. They're not, there's not one of those five. That's a genre movie. Here's yeah. what we're going to do. We're making a very by the numbers movie and the score is clear and the S Aesthetic of the score is just mimic these other 10 pictures. When you think about that, I mean, Nightmare, which I, of course, I've seen it and I've seen you perform it at the Hollywood Bowl. We, and yeah, we both went to the Bowl live. That was great. I'll tell you one thing that leaped out at Nightmare to me beyond everything else that leaped out. Your singing is so great. It's <laughs> You're such a, it made me think. Has anybody approached Danny to do Broadway? 
I mean, you could be on stage singing. It's so, it's not only in tune, which is a big favorite of mine for a singer, but yeah, at what point did, at what point did Tim or, or how did the decision get made that you were going to play Jack Skellington? (laughs) Yeah, that was a slow one because I was writing, you know, I really nightmare was a weird project. Again, there's no template. Neither Tim or I knew how do you begin an animated musical and all I know knew musically, which Tim was in agreement with me, fortunately, was what we didn't want it to sound like. So we don't want it to sound like a Broadway musical or a Disney musical. Other than that, what is it? No idea. So, but th- now I'm used to this because Edward and Batman, I mean, again, there was nothing. Uh, when I did Batman, the only score that was like the action score that would have been relevant would have been Superman. John Williams Superman. We knew we don't want it to sound like Superman. What do we want it to sound like? No idea. Um, Beetlejuice, no idea. Um, Nightmare Before Christmas, Edward Scissorhands, really no idea. I mean, Tim wouldn't even tempt the movie for preview because he's, he just couldn't find music to tempt it with. For Nightmare, it's like, all right, we don't really have a script. You have an outline, you have these great drawings. You have an animator with a studio set up ready to go. Let's just start writing songs. Let's just start doing songs. And he would come over every three days and show me drawings and tell me the story. And I'd go, I get it. Jack is feeling forlorn. He's the king of pumpkin town. He doesn't want the throne. He wants something else. And I get the song in my head. So I'd shoo him out the door and I'd go write Jack's Lament. Three days later, play him a demo. Next song, Jack's lost in the forest. He comes across these three doors. He gets sucked down. He sees Christmas Town. He sees this and this. And I'm going, I get it. I get it. I get it. I write, what's this? I spent about three days per song, demoed them up. And after a month, we got 10 songs. It's like, all right, we don't know how to do a musical, but we got 10 songs. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, we're telling as much of the story in the music as we can, because there wasn't really anything else to go with at that point. But um, the thing is, is it was this great luxury of nobody at Disney was trying to move us one direction or another. Cause they were like, we don't know what the hell this thing is. This is not Aladdin. This is not beauty and the beast. Yeah. This is not the little mermaid. <laughs> let's let them do their thing because yeah. this is clearly another world and they let us do our thing i mean there was no involvement uh in terms of approvals or needing to hear where it was going or what was happening and what a dream what a dream <laughs> you oh actually said also it's two things of all difficult genres in a in movie world you said how to do nobody you know had told us how to do an animated musical you know you could divide that animated films are virtually impossible to get right and musically incredibly challenging and a musical is a science that very few people understand and you're going to now do an animated musical from scratch i mean it doesn't sound like a disney musical just the man it's also like stop motion which adds probably another layer that was it's different. Everything well, about it was 
Yeah, but Tim and I both loved stop motion. I mean, Tim did stop motion. And of course, you know, I grew up on Harryhausen, so I loved stop motion. I, I couldn't have been more pleased about that. And Henry did a magnificent job. But just to answer your question, when did I know I was going to sing it? At the end of that period, Tim and I go in the studio and I have all the instrumental tracks and I laid vocals down for the entire musical with the exception of Sally's song which meant I did Jack's parts the big voices the little voices you know all the group stuff and we just spent one long evening recording demos for everything because these demos were going to go to Henry and Henry was going to begin animating and at the end of that session I was slowly becoming more apparent as I was singing all these songs for Jack that I hadn't started out thinking it was for me but by the end, I was getting this mindset that, you know, if another singer gets this part, he really better watch out for like mysterious accidents, like <laughs> a piano falling out of a window, uh, you know, a poison cyanide somehow getting in a cup of tea. It's like these things will become extremely possible for this person. Do you think and Tim secretly anticipated that happening or did it all just fall into place i, I couldn't answer he, that he was I know a boingo boingo fan he'd heard you i wonder i at the end of that session i go up to him i go you know tim um i don't know how to say this but jack's uh these songs and he goes danny don't worry you're doing it <laughs> no, I like, just wonder. Can, can that's great. A life your, has been saved. <laughs> Somebody, some some talented singer's life is just saved. You are the pumpkin. Have you? I, I'm. I, forgive me for not knowing. Have you sung another movie since Nightmare? Have you sung an entire uh, score? No. I. I mean, I did a song uh, in Corpse Bride for Tim, mm. um, called "Remains of the Day." That was really fun. And I did hundreds of voices for uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory uh, for all the songs for those. Cause that yeah. was Is all... your voice in the beginning of The Simpsons? I saw that somewhere. Uh, yeah, that the smartest accident I ever made in my oh, life. Oh, that's right, because of sag after. Yeah, being at Fox and we're doing the score just like a week after I wrote it for The Simpsons. And it's like it starts with those, The Simpsons. And I was going to hire three singers. And I said, I'll do one of them. And, you know, just put three of us in there. Why not? And I got my SAG card for that. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> I want to go back to Scissorhands for a minute because you, not only was it no template, but when you mentioned the singing, I don't know if you're a singer in the choir or you found a choir. Was there a moment where you thought, I know what we'll do for this ice dance? We'll do a choir sound. Um, I mean, it just feels well, no, that all these was part of the creation. Respect, you just yeah, think it, it's obvious, but there had to be a moment where it wasn't obvious. Well, it's when I was writing it. I, I really, you know, what were my inspirations for Edward? I mean, it would have been uh, Tchaikovsky. It would have been. Uh, you know, there's a the use of the celeste and choir. It, it's going to be Tchaikovsky, yeah. really. Um, I'm trying to think of if I'd even heard Gabriel Faure at that point, because mm. Faure became the Requiem, a huge piece for me. And um, it was right around that time. So uh, 
I think that had something to do with it. You know, it was interesting. When I heard Foray's Re- Requiem, it was a recording that had a boy rather than a soprano singing the part. And then later I, I saw, found other recordings and it was sopranos singing. And I said, they're wrong. They're all wrong. And I remember somebody saying, well, it was written for a soprano. You just happened to hear it. And then I did more research and I, I determined it may be correct or not that it was in fact written for a boy's voice. Hmm. And it's a totally different piece. And um, I really just became enamored with the simple style of singing that you can get from a boy that you can't get from a, an operatic soprano. And even still now, um, there are opera pieces that I hear that I can't listen to when they're sung by the opera singer that it's supposed to be, but I can hear it sung simply by a non-operatic singer. Uh, I yeah. like the sound of choir and, and simple singing, uh, non-emotional uh highly techniqued singing and uh the children's choir and or the boys choir really became the perfect sound because it's it's really pure but it doesn't have that highly techniqued feel to it that uh, the adults tend to get was it an actual choir or was it session singers oh no no it was a boys choir uh, we found through <laughs> I, I the reason i know this is because the choir came in with uh um, some nuns and uh, and uh, their choir teacher, who was also part of the congregation, and I had my first shrunken head in the studio with us. His name was Uncle Billy. I now have six shrunken heads, but that was the first. And Tim was like, "Hide Uncle Billy! Hide Uncle Billy! <laughs> we don't want the nuns to see this uh, um, shrunken head sitting in the control room." So we take Uncle Billy and we hide him down. <laughs> Beneath and and Tim would joke the entire recording, Uncle Billy's voice, like, Danny, why don't you want the boys to see me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Is it something I did? Are you ashamed of me? And Tim would do Uncle Billy, uh, sad voice coming from this drawer, I mean, a cabinet in the studio where he was hidden from the children. I think, I think it's interesting to even hear you talk about Tim saying something for this reason i had an incredible experience with you and tim which i'm sure for you is not even anywhere in your memory bank but for me was stunning i witnessed something that i'd never seen before and to hear you say tim making those jokes i didn't even know that tim spoke in a studio for this reason we're doing planet of the apes you've just recorded you've one of the most magnificent cues in the movie. It's huge. It's massive. It's probably seven minutes long. It's drums and horns and strings, and it's a huge action cue. And the it finishes, and I'm about to high five everybody in the room. Like, boy, did we just nail it? We knocked it in the head, Danny. You just crushed it with that cue. You looked at Tim. You're both sitting at the console. I'm standing sort of between you and behind you. You look at Tim. Tim sort of looks at you, but sort of doesn't look at you. And you say these words, I know, I know, I'll fix it. And (laughs) I stood there saying, did I just miss some kind of zen, nonverbal, 
cosmic communication between two collaborators that I was stunned. Tim did not open his mouth. You did not say there was something wrong in the queue. I thought we were done. And you scribbled something and you said something to the engineer and you walked out on the stand and you came back and you played the cue slightly differently, equally brilliantly. And to this day, I wanted to ask, and here's that moment, A, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Or is that what often happened, which is you and Tim had something going on that no one else in the room could know and you would look at him after a fabulous run through and say, I'll fix it. I know. <laughs> what was it? What did you do wrong in that queue? Uh, I I have no idea specifically <laughs> what it was, but that happened many times, as you're saying right now. So I I I know exactly what you're talking about, and that's one of the many reasons I can only sit in the control room during a mm. film score, um, because I want to read the director's body language. Mm. Um, you know, directors often tell you a lot by just how they're listening. And with Tim, I got to know there's certain things that can catch him in a certain way, you know, like a certain thing can jump out and catch his ear. And I could see him listening and I can hear, I can hear just at the moment where, okay, it's got it. It's this right here. It's uh, something about the way the strings are happening or something in the brass. Right. There's something that sounds a little too some line against another line in a way. You know, Tim has a difficult time with uh, dissonance. Hmm. And uh, that wait, stop, full stop. Here are these scores that have these incredibly interesting. I mean, even the Batman theme, almost dissonant. Boo doo boo. You know, you know that kind almost, of almost, almost. So but, to hear uh, that Tim has trouble with dissonance does he realize he's with a composer that plays with consonants and dissonance on a very narrow ledge but i have to with tim with all directors you find where their tolerance are to Hmm. things you know everybody's different with tim that's where his tolerance level is going to be it's like with dissonance you can make a rub in a certain way but beyond a certain point he's going to hear it as uh an error or something that grates him and takes him out of the melody. It takes him out of the moment. And so I began to learn where that's happening and try to be sensitive to it. But sometimes when we're playing, it could have been a number of things. It could have been something playing too big or too effusively, or it could have been as simple as a trumpet leading too much where I knew that it shouldn't. It could be any number of things, but I'm watching him. And I'm feeling this moment and I go, I know exactly what it is. And uh, so it finishes and I knew just where it happened. Then I can hear what was happening in the music at that moment and go, this is the thing that was catching his ear. Let me fix it before we even go any further. And I would say most of the time I could identify it before he really even needs to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, occasionally he'll hear something then bring it to my attention. But most, especially in the early performances, you know, the first couple of times I'll hear stuff say, Oh, that won't fly. No, I'll have to control that line. No, I got to bring this out. Okay. That brass thing is just never going to go. That, that's I got to really smooth that out or do this to it or do that to it. 
or take out some dissonance that I snuck in there and it's just not going to work. It's so subtle and I just... That's the relationship that composers dream of. Do you ever think about like the fact that you didn't have to weed through seven directors to find your match with Tim Burton? It seems like you guys are a a match, a dream come true for filmmaking and, and the fact that he called you to do that first, to do Pee Wee... Do you ever think about like the how lucky that that matchmaking was that yeah. you didn't have to oh, go oh, through? Of course, that it, it was a lucky break on so many levels because uh, a it was lucky that I got chosen at all. That my name happened to be both recognizable to him and Paul. Paul knew me through the Forbidden Zone, and Tim knew me through Oingo Boingo, and so Tim was open to the idea and was like, "Oh, that could be interesting," as opposed to like, "Oh, no, 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 that's not going to happen." And uh, so that was lucky. Uh, And two, yeah, it was lucky that I got a film that I was able to like cut loose and do my thing and that it was low enough under the radar that nobody was like looking, expecting something different to do what I expected and toss it out and get something professional in. And three, it was lucky that uh, we connected right there in the beginning, as you're saying. I mean, it was just a, a, a number of like, fateful things coming together at that moment uh now that we're 17 films later um to say that yeah that was definitely lucky or fateful i I don't know have you ever thought about acting danny like just on screen real live action yeah i know enough to know that i will never i knew early on that i could never be an actor and I'm the only actor out there that the one thing I got talked into doing ended up on the cutting room floor. And I was grateful. Um, it was Sam Raimi and it was in a movie called the gift. And he asked Mm. me to come. There's this thing where there's a hillbilly playing a tune, uh, in a swamp for Kate Blanchett. And he wanted me to be the hillbilly. So I, I was in New York (laughs) at the time. I picked up a violin. I didn't have one with me. Cheap violin. I flew out to Alabama or wherever they were shooting And what he didn't tell me is that I knew I'd have to get in all this makeup, a beard and all this stuff, but he didn't tell me I had lines. And and suddenly it's like, Danny, this is your dialect coach. I go, what the fuck? (laughs) Lines and dialect. I am so bad. I mean, when it comes to, I don't know how actors ever remember lines in a script. And there's a reason why I could never do like a play, do Broadway. Um, I blank on words. I remember notes. I remember melodies. Mm. But I learned this way back with Oingo Boingo. We'd get into rehearsals and we'd start playing Beatle tunes or things that we all knew. And everybody knew all the words and I didn't know any of them. Mm. <laughs> I, I don't know the words to any songs. I know like three words or one line or something like that. But it's like, that's odd. And then I learned as I got into performing that I can't remember my own words. Uh, A lot of the times I go, I hit blank spots frequently. It's like blackouts. It's like I'm on stage and I'm in the second chorus when the third verse is coming up. And just before it starts, I try to like think I realize it's not there. Oh, and this used to happen to me regularly to the point where I was an uneasy performer. I was never a natural easy performer. But this moment with Sam Raimi, with the beardian, and all the actors are sitting around looking at me. And the more I'm doing the lines, the worse I'm getting. 
And this happens to me when I'm doing a promo. Like you try to get me to do like a promo for like a, uh, can you do these lines about the show coming up, do the promo? The more times I do it, the worse I get. Oh, we have to get the first take then of the one you're going to do for score the podcast. Oh my God. You're not (laughs) kidding. It's like, I have like a serious, I mean, I have all kinds of mental weirdnesses. Um, I sometimes wonder when that happens, is it because your brain is so focused on the current project, the the future that you're doing that you can't remember things from before? I just wonder if that, you know, that it's a forgivable in that way that you're not, you can't, there's not enough room to remember what was before you. I, I think it's weirder than that. I think I have miswiring, <laughs> seriously, like miswired stuff. I mean... I have things that have been my whole life. I've never been able to learn a second language. Um, I blank out on words. Uh, words go through me like a sieve. I, I just don't hold on to them, but I can hold on to notes. Interesting. Um, I was able to learn how to r- listen to, freeze in my head, and write down music very easily. It was way easier than I thought, but reading it, I never could do it. Interesting. I took lessons later to try to learn how to get my reading abilities up. I just lose it all. And um, it's like my reading is still, because I taught myself to write without ever reading, I read at the speed that I could write, which is one note at a time. So I can't sit there and read 12 staves simultaneously. So in answer to why I'll never be a conductor I mean, that's one of many. It'd be a fucking joke, <laughs> me conducting, because I know the whole score in my head, and I can hear a wrong note when it happens very quickly. But f- seeing where on the paper, when, when the question is, I hear an A flat in the clarinet in bar 127, but I hear an A natural coming from the second violins. Like, for me to like look at that and go, whoa, wait, wait, whoa, 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 it takes too long. Um, wow. I, I can't just like go, whoop. Bang, like that. Like our, so interesting like, uh, that you can write, though, the way that you do, that you can see it on paper and write it on paper. But I understand. And it might be, I wonder if it has something to do with the language thing, too. It's, it, there's parts I of think the brain, they're, maybe. They're tied, they're tied together. I mean, I've tried. I really have. And um, Maybe write, Uncle Billy got that part of it. Uh, Uncle maybe Billy. Uncle Billy got it. But, but writing <laughs> is tedious, and because I never did scales on an instrument, I never learned to read naturally on an instrument. It never became a natural thing for me. Yeah. Um, I never, I never, you know, there, there was one point I tried taking violin lessons after I started it, you know, when I came back and the teacher asked me, where was I on the page? And I couldn't tell him. I'd memorized uh, the, scales, the lesson easily, but it's like, where are you? He caught on. He says, you're not reading. I go, no, not quite. <laughs> we are doing this uh, this podcast certainly in a very interesting time in all of our yeah. culture, and and it's affected all of us in different ways. But one way that it has affected our guest, you were going to play Coachella this month. That's right. Is it from Boingo to Batman? It. Oh. Uh, I can't tell you exactly because it's still going to happen. Good. I hope so. In October, we hope. We hope. Um, but the fact is, yeah, it was, uh, you know, Paul Collette, he, he tried to get me interested in doing Coachella for a long time. 
you know, and at a certain point it's like, okay, a Boingo reunion's not going to happen just because yeah. I just have a thing about reunions and I, I can't do it. And then at a certain point it was like, we'll do a film thing. Look, you know, Hans did a film thing and I said, I can't do that without a big orchestra mm. and feel right with myself. Right. Cause you know, we've been doing film concerts for seven years now and you know, when I do a film concert, it's a film concert. There's there's 120 it's gotta be. people on stage with the choir and the orchestra. and But then uh, he flew me out there, and I saw the screens and the whole setup. And I said, wait a minute. There's a way to do this that's mixing everything from my last 40 years together. Um, bits of film, bits of songs, probably maybe Oingo Boingo songs, and at that same time, I've been working on this new stuff that I had in my mind. And I thought, oh, my God, I could premiere this new work. Wow. And suddenly it all made sense. And I said, I can do this and I will do it. That's uh, fantastic. Because- and I, I can't wait. And I just wondered, I guess, for every performer that was slated for Coachella, was there a moment when it was either, oh, shit, I was ready to go or... Thank God I get another six months. I'm just wondering when you were told, or was it just no, say la vie? It, it was horrible. Um, mm. I put three months of intense work into prepping, you know, because unlike almost anybody else out there, I was creating a show from scratch, from nothing. Right. It means I had to hire a band. I had to put together arrangements. I had to figure out what it was. Um, uh, rearrange orchestral music. It was it was so much work and we were just at the point where the band was together and we we're starting to actually sound good. Mm. And I was getting really excited. Um, I was worried about the fact that, wow, it sure be nice to have a warm up show somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, there's still that part of me, that fuck it. That is like, you know, it's like go out there without a safety net. It's like I still get into a frame of mind that's like, yes, yeah, it, it makes no sense, but they still can't shoot you for <laughs> fucking up on stage. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is what I learned when I went out to do Nightmare Before Christmas songs with the Elfman Burton show seven years ago at Albert Hall. I hadn't performed in 18 years. I had stage fright even for the 23 years I was on stage. It had gotten infinitely worse in the 18 years of not performing and i had to step out at albert hall with no warm-up shows ever in front of an audience and sing i was Whew, petrified i bet and i'll never forget i was at the stage door and i'm really thinking about just heading out to a pub and hiding out till the show is over and helena bonham carter was going to do sally's song and she's sitting there on the floor and uh, getting into character and she goes danny what's going on i go i don't know if i can do this i really i don't know if i can walk through these doors and she says to me danny come on fuck it right oh perfect and she spoke I your say, language there of course my whole <laughs> life has been that and it's like why would it be different right now and i just said fuck it they really they still can't shoot you put you in a firing squad or hang you for fucking up on stage. Yeah. And I went out there and I had one of the best performing moments of my life. 
That's because that's the best attitude. It it was a reminder once I started that I'd never performed in England, never was there with Ongo Boingo. I had no idea what to expect. We had no rehearsals or run-ups to the show. I had no idea what was going to happen. But once I started, the audience was there for me. And it was so moving. It's like they were my safety net. I didn't need a safety net. Oh, that's wonderful. If I'd have fucked up, they'd have forgiven me. I could have stopped the song and started it again. And they would not. And it was just this wonderful thing of remembering what live is all about. What really live is all about. Not manufactured live. Not semi-live. Not well-prepped live. Just getting out there without a clue of what's going to happen. Like moments like that are amazing. And um, and that was an amazing moment. Of, of Are you feeling that for uh, this Coachella show? Because you said you have no run-throughs. So it's kind oh, of that yeah. similar That's situation. where I was like up to four weeks ago. It was like, this makes this is going to be insane. Especially the fact that I'm opening with a tune that nobody's ever heard before. And, Great. Uh, I shouldn't even say that. I've already said too much. And um, big news I going was out. Oh, it's yeah. just great. By so the way, it, 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 it was it was rough. It was rough. It was very rough. I bet. And but the Coachella audience also is so uh, will love you from the first eighth note and be there for you. I'm certain, and will be excited. I can't wait. I was disappointed that Coachella. You know, I, I'm a huge Coachella fan, but the last couple of years I haven't been so sure. Danny Elfman at Coachella, not to be missed. And, um, you know, first oh, things first. It was a hard one. I bet. It but was a hard one. They'll come back together. Just before we close it all up, yeah. is there something you're working on between now and Coachella in October? Or did this disrupt your whole oh, yeah. year? Don't you have a Oh, picture? it disrupted my whole year. You yeah. know, the beauty of... One of the beauties of Coachella is that I was finishing Saturday night, next Saturday, you know, three nights ago was supposed to be the first night. Right. And I was getting on a plane on Sunday to get to London to make the dress rehearsal three days later for my violin concerto having its London debut with the BBC <laughs> Orchestra. And of course that canceled too. But yeah. the idea of having those two things, Coachella and a violin concerto playing three days apart was for me amazing. I said, this is incredible. This is what my life is about. Yeah. These contrasts are what I love. Yeah. And um, even right now, uh, I'm, I'm doing two things. I'm finishing a commission for the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. Hmm. Uh, hmm. It's supposed to play with a proms uh, in August, but of course, TBD. we don't know. To GBD and uh, or early September, you know, mm -hmm. whether things will be back on by then. So uh, 165 young musicians, incredibly talented musicians. I saw them play a year ago. They'd asked me to do a commission. And I was like, so I saw like eight trombones, four tubas, you know, it's like, I'm so there. <laughs> it's like, I am like on board and really talented kids. So I'm in the middle of that. And along with these few new pieces for Coachella that I was doing, I've had this concept in mind for the last uh, year and a half. I call it the big mess. And uh, I don't know what to call it, but it's kind of like chamber punk. Uh, it's mm. rock band and a small 
chamber orchestra playing in a way that I'm just not used to hearing. So I just finished another song for that last night. So I'm doing more of that because even though there were two songs going in uh, Coachella, um, I knew that I wanted to get more together and, and have something come out at some point. Do you think so there any special guests in the plan for Coachella? Pardon me? Are there any special guests joining you? You know, we talked with a few, but now with a new time frame, I'm not even going to mention it because the chances of those happening, it's all goes totally back to scratch. If people are on tour or not around, you know, the a special guest has to be a lucky thing. If somebody can, they're in town, they can yeah. come out and do it. Uh, and I have a feeling by the time it comes around, whether it be in October or next April, God knows, who knows, um, it's not going to be the same. And, um, but, uh, so no, I, I can't mention any guests and, and I'm not needing guests. You know, if I, oh, there are a few guests that if I can get, it would be great, but we had a show down that was going to be really pretty rocking. And, uh, so being that you only get an hour in Coachella, it's like already we were like, holy crap, how do I get this thing into one hour? Cause it's covering a lot of ground. Well, I kind of love the chamber punk idea. I want to see that. I want to see a cellist yeah. in the mosh pit, you know, just mix and match for two genres and rock the house. <laughs> it's just a, a thing that I don't know. It's using strings in a way that I've been wanting to do for a while aggressively um, very aggressive string playing. So they're a kind of part of the band, part of the rhythm section. Right on. I, wa I wanted to ask you one last question before we let you go. Um, you've had so many great pieces of music. People love your scores. I'm just curious though, for you personally, is there a score that you're most proud of? Maybe you overcame something or something that was super challenging that, that changed your outlook on, on this career that you've had, this amazing career? Is there something that, that really speaks to you as your proudest score? No, no. It's really just a lot of different moments. You know, they're like the hardest, the, the big mountain was Batman because that was where I was up against the most resistance and I had to prove myself. But um, Edward Scissorhands would be like the most... I could do whatever I want and nobody is listening. And, you know, there's no adults in the room. It's just him and I. Oh, and that was total freedom. And that and, you know, along with Nightmare and Beetlejuice, that those are favorites because literally I felt completely free to do whatever I want with Tim. And Tim allowed me such freedom that um, it was really now in hindsight, I think some of, you know, my favorite moments naturally are going to be that. Um, but then I have all kinds of others, you know, I really love doing milk for Gus Van Zandt. I mean, the challenge of doing that score, uh, the challenge of doing a movie called Dolores Claiborne, where I'd never done anything mm. like that before. Um, I really got into and loved doing that. Um, there, there's all these, uh, scores where I got to do something that I never did before, and anytime that happens, that becomes like a favorite moment for me. Um, I know one know, of mine that is really unorthodox, and I we talked about it before you came on, which is Midnight Run. 
Midnight Run. Okay, that's I just, another one. It's just so funky. And so, wait, that's Danny? Because it's like a an accordion and a slide guitar and just blues, funk, and and it's funny. You make... Oh, it's one of my favorites. It's Dorfler. And um, oddly, one of my favorite scores is... People don't believe me when I say this. is Alice in Wonderland. Mm. Uh, because... I feel like for a certain type of narrative score that's following a classical narrative sense of like melodically taking you through from character to character and everything tying together in a certain way, I think it's my best score in in that manner. I was able to put it together in a way that there's all these pieces and they all fit and then play in the end uh, in a way where all the pieces of the puzzle really get to express themselves. And uh, it's one of my favorite themes for my own stuff. So Planet of the Apes, the God, all my drums. Holy crap. And forget about that. I never had to do that before. It's like become like an entire drum core myself. <laughs> um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, a hundred voices of Oompa Loompas. It's all me sitting in my basement, just doing voice after voice after voice. I love that. Oh, my God. I was like doing those songs was so much fun. So challenges are the things. Girl on a train. Not many. Not everybody saw that, but that's a score where it's mostly me playing really bad, nasty electric guitar <laughs> and and synthesizers myself. And I loved it. I'm performing the score, <laughs> and um, I just had such a good time doing that. I'm doing. Anytime you get me doing something that I haven't done before. I'm a happy camper. Directors out there, remember that. Something he hasn't done before. Come with the challenge. You might get lucky. And you might get what clearly is Danny in Wonderland. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, let me take this time just because I, it's a rare opportunity to thank you for uh, creating the soundtrack of certainly my life and, and many of our listeners and, and your fans out there. And also for taking the time to come on the show during this time. We really appreciate oh, it. This has been so great. You're very welcome. And by the way, I have two more concertos I'll be working on in the next year, Robert. Oh, good. Cannot wait for so that So next stuff. year we'll, do a, we'll come back. We'll talk about Coachella. We'll talk about concertos. We'll talk about how Billy is doing because we're going to be – have a lot of fans writing in to see if he's okay. But Danny, what yeah. a treat. Really a treat for, for all of us. I know for all our listeners, but personally for me, just wonderful to hear well, some the, of these the, stories. The treat is mine. This is so much fun. And look, you know, we're all going crazy right now and I'm bored silly. <laughs> um, and to have a lively conversation, which of course, talking with you, you know, is always a pleasure talking with somebody who understands exactly what I do. It's not a mystery. I, you know, I don't have to kind of explain myself to you uh, in terms of what it is. You're, you're interested in how things happen and what way, but I don't have to like educate you. You know as much or more than I'll ever know about music. And so it, that's a pleasure for me. So thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. It is our thank pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, a reminder to our listeners to follow us. There's a number of ways. Instagram, score movie, Twitter, at score the podcast, Facebook, score a film music documentary. And uh, shoot us your questions. Score the mailbox at epiclef.com. And uh, stick around after the show. We're going to play you a little clip from Spitfire Audio so you can elevate your music. Robert, take it away. Hey, Danny Elfman, what a treat. Our kickoff episode for season three. Just a beautiful way to start start our <laughs> new season. We wish everyone great health coming up. 
and a big thank you to Maestro Elfman. We'll see you next time. Much love. Thank you, Danny. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Hey, SCORE listeners, we're so grateful for the support of Spitfire Audio. They, of course, collaborate with composers like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herrmann Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what it sounds like. And as an exclusive to our SCORE, the podcast listeners, Spitfire is offering 20% off your first order. That's good on over 50 of their libraries that will elevate your music. It's exclusive to score the podcast listeners. Just go to spitfireaudio.com and enter that promo code SCORE2020 so they know we sent you. And uh, check it out. Here's a little clip from the Bernard Herman toolkit so you can elevate your music. Again, use that promo code SCORE2020 to get 20% off your first order. Thanks for listening to SCORE, the podcast. We will see you next week on the show. Right on.